0: purchases, material things are great, or good, but they're temporary enjoyment. They're temporary satisfaction. They're not an eternal satisfaction. Changing lives, seeing lives change, seeing their quality of life being better, and it brings a lot of joy to see people just better their lives. That's actually more enjoyment for me than buying stuff.
1: What is up, you sexy bastards? It is your boy, King Tapas, aka Rabbi can Lose, aka Noah Kagan. Before we tell you who the guest is, I, I love you guys. I love that you listen to the show. I love making the show. I get to meet interesting people, share their stories, also share my own business adventures to help you get inspired on in your own business journey, have a lot of fun out there. Thank you. That's it. I love you guys. In today's episode, we talk to David Lee, the CEO and chairman of Hing Wah Lee Jewelers. I stumbled across David many, many years ago on Instagram because he has the biggest Ferrari collection in the world. And I was curious about his backstory about his Ferraris, and he has a ton of Rolexes. He's got one of the largest Rolex dealers in the world. I think they're an exclusive one out in LA. It turns out that his family has an insane story that really should be made into a movie. His father escaped the communist revolution in China by swimming across shark-infested waters to founding a 60-year-old family company making jewelry and eventually coming to America. This is basically the Chinese Eddie Murphy, but with more cars and Rolexes. It's an amazing story, and I'm really grateful that David came and shared it. Here's three gigantic things you'll take away in this episode. One, how David uses lessons from cultural and racial challenges to solve business problems. Two, David's five-star principles to success, unique expressions of love within Chinese families, and how they raise successful kids. Plus, a bunch more ear nuggets along the way. Let's dive in. Before we go into the show, if you ever wanted to launch your own business or you've been entrecurious, as they're called these days, or you want to be an indie worker or a solopreneur or whatever the buzzwords are, I can help you. I've helped sumo, I've helped over 10,000 people get their own businesses going. So if you're looking to make money, which it's going to be hard, but if you're willing to do the work, I can help you. We have a course, I think it's only 20 bucks. It might be raised by the time you're listening to it. It's called How to Make Your First $1,000 Month Business or Beyond. You can go get it at okdork.com slash monthly 1K. That's okdork.com slash monthly 1K. Also, go join my Noah's Nuggets newsletter. Wow, that's a tongue twister. Every week, I send three actionable tips for people who are looking to get their businesses going, marketing advice, and just cool products I find online. You can sign up at okdork.com slash nuggets. That's okdork.com slash N-U-G-G-E-T-S. Also, a special pre-show shout out to listener Joseph K. I saw Joseph biking last week in Austin. He saw me wearing my sumo jersey and he's like, hey, Noah. And I was like, Joseph, he used to be my neighbor. He's like, dude, I'm listening to your episode about Ryan, the pro cyclist from a week ago, which was an amazing episode if you have not checked it out. And he's like, I like listening to your episodes when I just want something relaxing and entertaining and a little bit of business adventures. Thank you, Joseph. And every other one of you gorgeous listeners, you want to shout out in a future episode. Also, I can shout out your businesses as well. Just leave a review wherever you listen to the podcast. We check every single one of them.
2: I run a software company. All right. We have a pretty popular channel in the business category. Okay.
0: This is fun. Even for me doing this uh, from a social media level is just fun. Yeah, I just do it for fun. Does it drive business? Do you see it impact the stores? It does impact the stores in that way. But right now, the dynamic, we don't have enough to sell. Yeah. So even if I drive more traffic to me, people, oh, I want to come in and buy a Rolex sport watch. I don't have one to sell them. My existing clients already has already had such demand that I cannot even fill that supply. Yeah. It helps, but then it doesn't help because it's not like it's creating new other necessary business for me yeah. from that. It, it is still good because it's still branding, which helps. And so there's benefits for sure, but not
2: necessarily a lot of sales coming from it. Have you ever thought of doing like a Ferrari watch with you or doing your own branded watches?
0: Yes, I am going to do my own branded watches. So I have created a company called Monza Design as a global brand. And we are actually about to launch the eyewear. So Monza Design Eyewear. And we're creating a prototype that is for the watches, Monza Design watches, that we will produce and sell. So that's coming up. The Rolexes are sold out everywhere. Yeah, too.
2: yeah, yeah. No. So this would be definitely great for <laughs> something like that. <laughs> And maybe that'd be cool if it's like to get X to buy a Rolex, you have to have some of these kind of watches too.
0: Well, you know, the Rolex doesn't want us, has a whole thing about not leveraging their brand to sell other stuff because just whatever, that's their positioning. But in reality, yeah. You'll prioritize your wait lists. People buy my other product. You know, my other brands I have 25 brands, right? So the other 24 brands, if you buy some of those, the more you buy, the we consider you a higher priority to, to give you something you
2: want. It's the same thing in a way yeah it's just normal business practice yeah you treat your best customers great for the people who don't know you on our channel how would you share your story in like 30 seconds so like for people who don't know who david is who is david
0: i'm originally from hong kong i came here in the mid 70s when i was a a young you know elementary school i grew up in southern california and in hong kong my family was in the jewelry manufacturing business my father since 1965 so it's been quite some time. I joined the business full-time after graduating from USC in 1990. And as I saw the business need, I developed the business model from wholesale to retail. And I brought in watches. Rolex being my most popular uh, watch uh, that I got the authorized dealership in 1995. And then since then to now, this last really 30 years now, we've been the market leaders and in America for watches and jewelry retail. But beyond that, about, uh, I would say, 13, 14 years ago, I really developed this passion to collect Ferraris strategically and very thoughtfully. And I guess today, with the collection I have and my social media, that I'm considered the most recognizable Ferrari collector
2: in the world. Roughly, how many Ferraris and what's the, the rough worth of all the Ferraris that you have?
0: yeah I, I have roughly 34 hours so that was also a strategy because I want to drive one each day because I'm more I like the experience you know of, of the driving because having it is nice but that's like art when you drive it then it's a car. I'm a you know guy that likes to drive it so I keep it in 30 so that it, I can drive it once a month but also the cars need to be driven or else they break down I, especially I have a lot of classic cars that need to be driven so that would be usually the framework sometimes it's more sometimes it's less depending but around that much. I would say with all this time that I've passed and with the intense valuation, appreciation of these alternative investment categories like classic
2: cars, the values of all my cars have gone up to about $80 million. That's wild. Which pretty, yeah, which is pretty substantial. And then one thing I was curious is like, how much does a watch business make to be able to afford that kind of collection?
0: You know, we have about 25 different brands that we represent. So we're in the model of retail jewelry that is authorized dealership for watches authorized dealership for jewelry and also non-branded jewelry. And we cater to high end market in Southern California. It's a good business model. We're one of the top producing retailers of the brands that we all we carry, so we know that we're strong. It makes a very good income, I guess. But our whole portfolio, our whole family enterprise is more than just the jewelry. We have the retail division, we have a real estate division that we've developed all the way since my father until now. You know, and again the business is almost sixty years in two years, right? So we've really developed a very intensive real estate portfolio and an investment portfolio that we invest in a lot of different entrepreneurial companies that also produce. So it's an overall kind of situation. It's not just able to collect all these Ferraris, not just from uh, being in the retail business.
2: We'll get into that. But coming back to your family story, why did they move from Hong Kong to America? Why did they immigrate? You know, life is very interesting. It's a cause of different events that happen in your life that, that cause you to make
0: decisions, right? For my father, he was in Hong Kong. He was uh, manufacturing a gemstone carver by trade. When he escaped from China and he you know, escaped by boat and he swam in from China, he got a job as an apprentice for a gemstone carver. He swam? Oh yeah, yeah. So he was from southern China originally. He was born as a to- Toisan. And his father was taken away from the um, Communist Red Army to these concentration camps to reprogram themselves. Anybody that had any education, that were wealthy. They would take their land, take these guys and change the ideal to the new communist ideal. So he was the village leader of the village that they were at. He had a little bit of education. So they took him to, to reprogram. A lot of people died in those harsh conditions. So my father and his family was left with no breadwinner, no father, no breadwinner, right? So they were really desperate. They tried many things to make money. It didn't pan out for them. And so a trip was devised that there was work in Hong Kong for them to go there and find work and send money back. But it was a very treacherous journey. A lot of people from all over China and there's different routes, different ways that they escape, you hear they escape to Hong Kong. Hong Kong originally didn't have all these Chinese people. Hong Kong people were coming from China to Hong Kong to develop what Hong Kong is today. Anyways, my father, from where he lived, it was the opportunity of a supply ship going from China to Macau, okay? So you can buy a stowaway to be on a stowaway of this boat, this supply boat. So my father, who was 13, his brother that was 15, his older brother, he's number two, decided to take this risky journey to escape to Hong Kong. They got in the hole of the, of the boat, as well as maybe 20 or 30 people that also had the same mean to escape to try to find work. They went and, and they drove. And I guess in the Indian Ocean, the closest point that they could jump off and swim to shore which was still miles away, and that's what they did. They did it by a flotation device, which is two volleyballs and a net, two flotation, and a sack of bread to make the journey. My father remembers at that time, half the people didn't make it, because in the middle of the ocean, it's very cold, so the hypothermia, big waves, you know, and stuff like that you're fighting against these big waves, you get tired, you, you know, you're just tired and you die. This is shark-infested waters there, and then let's say if you get through all that, you're strong enough. You get so close to Hong Kong, the coast guards that would pick you up would beat you to, you know, smithereens, and people die from that. If you don't die from that, when they bring you back to China, and the China authorities beat you, you're gonna definitely die from that. It was rough, right? And obviously, he made it. He didn't. He, he made it through all those difficulties, got on shore, went on t- into Hong Kong, and in that time, he had no skills. He didn't know anything. A job was to learn to be an apprentice, learn from a master. They probably pay you very mm-hmm. little. You learn that trade, and then you come out, maybe you, then you teach that trade or you start a business on that trade. So my uncle was a tailor, went to a master to, to do tailor like a suit, and my father went to a master that was a gemstone carving master, destined his destiny as a gemstone carver. He didn't say, oh, I, want to, I wanted to go there, I want to be a gemstone carver, so I'll go there. No, it was just that was the destiny wow. of him. So he became a gemstone carver, and in five years, a lot of people left in three years, but in five years, and he worked, and he was very frugal for himself. He sent money back to China so that the whole family can live. That was something that is very important to take care of your family, you know, you know first, before you take care of yourself. That was very instilled into us since young. Then after five years, he came out and started his own business, started taking in his own apprentice. And, and he was the gemstone master, a very good one. a famous one. So Heng Wali, that was his name. 1965, so that's why in two years, we'll, our family business is almost, it will be 60 years, which we're very proud of. Anyways, in doing his business and selling to a lot of, in the 70s, there was a lot of people who wanted to appreciate art, and they would buy it from galleries, they would buy it, and they would sell it to consumers. People would put it in the house, in their mantles, whatever. Anyways, the Smithsonian Institute one time said, oh, we had all these arts that we have, Chinese art, but we don't know how to handle moving around. They broke, and they're very delicate. We need to get somebody to repair all this stuff. It's very valuable. We need some. So they asked the German Mineral Society of Washington, D.C. to, to send a team to supply to Hong Kong. They looked through everything. Anyways, they interviewed 10 different gemstone masters. They ended up keep going back to my father. They liked my father. And then so they asked him if he would come to do the restoration project. He said he would. So he came to Washington, D.C., did the restoration project. And those same people that brought him over, my father asked him, can you help me set up an, an office here so that we can really... Have an office in America, and then we can sell to more direct instead of them coming to Hong Kong to buy from him. He said, "Yeah." So they helped him get a green card instead of an office in Washington D.C., and that was why we came to Washington D.C. And then, of course, they brought us over—my my sister, myself, my mom—to come over. We were living both Hong Kong and America,
2: but that's how we came to America because of that destiny. Amazing story. Yeah. yeah and how did you feel about coming over, and, and what struggles or discrimination did you notice? I often
0: think about that. What would have happened if I stayed in Hong Kong and we developed? And it, wasn't, it wouldn't have bad, been necessarily bad either. You know, Hong Kong was a very prosperous place. But then my destiny was in America. That's, and it, would, it was what it is. Obviously, I know also what I went through, which is you take a guy from Hong Kong, a Chinese, come to America to just live. There's going to be a big culture shock. There's a big language barrier. There's a lot of racial discrimination back in the early 70s, right? Mid-70s. So obviously, you have that. And I did experience all those things which impacts me as I grow up, obviously, also. But as any young person, they they will adapt quick, they will learn English quick, they will learn the culture quick, and they will assimilate quick. You know, and I have to say, now thinking back, that actually helped me in my business, to be able to do business, to be somebody that, in in my mind, thinking half American and half Chinese equally. Because every summer, we'd go back to Hong Kong because a lot of people, like if they were Chinese and they came here, they're mainly Chinese, they might be able to speak some English, but they think and act like a Chinese, right? Or if you're American and you speak some Chinese, you go to Hong Kong, you still think like American, and you even though you speak some Chinese, everybody knows, okay, he's American. But for me, I am 100% Chinese and
2: 100% American because of my upbringing. That had helped many areas in my business. What is Chinese thinking? What is American thinking? Well, it... You know, there's a lot of, it's a cultural.
0: The culture of the Chinese, you know, how they think, the respect, how everybody thinks is in the line as a Chinese. American is very different. American has a very American culture and upbringing. Just like Japanese would have Japanese, Russian would have Russian, Saudi Arabia would have Saudi Arabia. Everybody has their own thing. When you do something that means something respectful or so-called acceptable in your culture could not mean the same thing on the other culture. So you do that. And it pisses other people off because they're like, hey, you know, you just disrespected me. That culture difference is what hurts business sometimes.
2: But if you you understand those things, then you act accordingly, then your business is going to be better. What what was the story that comes to mind some of the hardship either you saw your dad face or you faced as you were coming to America? I think just because uh, there wasn't a lot of Chinese in that time, I guess
0: you can say. And if you're living in a primary Caucasian community, there was a lot of nice people. But there's a lot of people without knowing uh, just have this, you know, naturally discriminative or racial environment. So are you accepted so much? Do they take advantage of you? Are they not inclusive? They don't give you the opportunity. You know, they don't welcome. All those things that would happen because you're different, you're a foreigner, or maybe your English is not 100%. You don't act like the others, you know, and because they're not used to a different culture in their
2: environment in those days. What did you observe about your father in those moments, or your father during as he immigrated to America as well, or learned from him?
0: My father was my mentor and taught me a lot, and a lot of times it was about business. In Asian culture, showing love to your kids is not the same as American culture. I know both because I tell my kids I love them, yeah. I support them, I do all that, that's American. Asians don't do it like that, you know? They don't speak it, they don't say it, but the actions they do shows the love, okay? When they talk, instead of saying, oh, I love you, whatever, but they teach you what are the, the life lessons, teach you how people think, how businesses run, what ethics you need to have. Uh, matter of fact, my father, toward the end of his life, had gained so much wealth. He was always very frugal for himself, but he would always use all the money to buy investment properties, apartments, real estate. For what? For himself? He can't take it with him. It's for the next generation, for us, for his children. So he'd rather build up this for the children and not to use for himself. So you see that the love is shown in a different way because he wants to secure your future. He wants all the generation after to have, to, to not have to struggle like he did. Yeah. That's action, that's love.
2: What were some of these life lessons that he taught you?
0: There was many, and but I think as I grow up and as a lot of people ask me what are some of the uh, business ethics of success, I draw back to what my father has told me and I came together with a formula, okay? You know, he didn't exactly put it in these ways, but I absorbed everything that he taught and I came. I simplified to these five things that is what will produce success. Because success is not a particular road because that road happens one time and it doesn't happen another time. So if you do the exact same, but if you understand the concept, could then work. And what are those? So three things that is under your control, okay? The three things of a business ethic that you need as part of this five is under your control. And what are they? First, to the work hard. Okay. Now, in every one of these, it needs to be explained much further because your definition of working hard could be different than mine, but working hard. Second is working hard with perseverance. Perseverance is the second one. And lastly, the third one is integrity, working with integrity. Okay. You would think these three are very simple, but if you dive in too deep, it goes a lot more further. It's a lot harder than you think that it is. Now, what are the two other things that is not in your control? One is timing and one is opportunity, okay? So those are not in your control, the timing or the opportunity that comes across. But what I do know is if all five of these things are right or are being done or right at the same time, and you take action at that time, that will produce success. Now, what happens is this sometimes. Sometimes you're doing all these work ethics, but you have the opportunity, but the timing is not right. Then it's not gonna go good. Or maybe sometimes the timing is right, opportunity is right, but you don't do those things so you cannot get that opportunity to take it on. All five things have to come together at the same time, have to be engaged. Sometimes they say, David, how long do I have to keep doing this, you know? And it seems like long, it might be a long time. You might have to do all three things and it might, the timing might be 10 years later. It could be 15 years later, it could be 20 years later. And then it will all come together. No, nobody says it's gonna come quick. That's why you have to wait for the timing. Those are the five things that I accumulated from my father and from my experience of seeing all my successful business friends that I see that they all have in common, that these five things are what it is. Do you believe the American dream is still alive? Yes, there's a lot of opportunities. There's a lot of opportunities, even when the economy is so-called bad, that's when actually the most opportunities comes. That's when you can find the opportunities, when people are nervous, when people are, you know, not willing. I mean, that's why when uh, Warren Buffett says, when everybody wants to get out of the market, he comes in. When everybody wants to get in the market, he just backs out. Because the reverse thinking is where the opportunities happen. You know, if everybody is going after the same thing when it's hot, then there's a lot of competition. How are you able to have the opportunity? Because everybody's smart, everybody's coming at it. You're not going to get those deals. And I've seen many times that that has happened to be true. What is your definition of the American dream? I think that my definition is that anybody could achieve success if they work hard enough, if they work persistent enough, if they work with integrity. Like I said, the other two, the opportunities and the, and the timing. If you do those things in America, a bigger majority of the people can experience the American dream, can experience success. Not every country can do that. But in America, because of the way our laws are, our philosophy, our commerce, our economics environment, it allows for anybody to have that opportunity, put it that way. Do you think you achieved it? I definitely feel I, my father achieved it. I feel like I added to it and achieved it, and now I'm hoping that my son will continue and add to as well. My father came with nothing. He, when he escaped from China, he had zero. They were on starvation, and the whole family going to starve if they don't succeed. The whole family will just die. Nobody's going to help. There's no government help or there's government assistance or anything like that. You don't make it, you die. It was a life-and-death situation. They came with no money. So I guess if you count from that, from my father. It was the American dream. He was very successful. And do I take that and do I just benefit from that or do I take it to the next level for him? And I think I did because I probably, from when I took over to now, I've increased the business 100 times more than where it was. So I guess I did, you know. But also, and I tell my kids and they know very well, in Chinese is a saying, the wealth does not last more than three
2: generations, okay? And I can see that. The first generation really struggling to build it up, and they build up a platform. The one thing I was curious about though before that is what opportunities are you seeing today? During this whole time, even with the cars, I didn't feel like I necessarily bought them at
0: super good price. It was a little bit better than market, but I bought them just like anybody could. And they've gone up in value so much. Everybody had the same opportunity, but do you have the eye to see it? And do you believe it, and do you put your money where your mouth is to go for it? I did, and I achieved it. There was those opportunities in real estate. There was those opportunities in, in the stock market. There was opportunities during the pandemic. I know a lot of people made a lot of money selling gloves and masks to the government and so forth. I know this one guy that made a lot of money creating the COVID tests, the little test that you can do at home. He's not the only one, but he did that. He sold a gazillion amount of them, you know, and making money. Just the other day, this guy bought Irwindale Speedway. It's like a little track, around track. I'm in Irwindale right here. Bought it for $20 million. He wanted to make an outlet mall. He got the city approval. And then he found that building costs is too much and they wouldn't, they wouldn't finance it or whatever. So he wanted to change it to warehouse because warehouse is hot. He asked the city. The city wouldn't do it because the city said, hey, you know, if it was outlet, then I would have sales revenue because of the sales tax. But if it's a warehouse, it wouldn't. They wouldn't get, let them do it. He goes, oh, that's bumper." Now, you know, I bought this property. Then he said, okay, well, I'll rent it to these trucks to park there. It's a big parking lot. They can park there. And the business was really good. There was a lot of people that needed to park their trucks, their container trucks there because the refuelment uh, system needed the trucks to move around. So they needed to park too somewhere. So he parked, he got good revenue. He just sold that property for $80 million. This has just happened. $80 million. Bought it for 25 years ago. He sold it for $80 million now. So sometimes you need to know how to pivot. You need to have the timing and the
2: opportunity. But the other things, you, you keep at it, it can create wealth. And it's happening every day this is happening. For yourself, how did you, a lot of our audience is young entrepreneurs aspiring to have one Ferrari. <laughs> how did you make your first million? I made my
0: first million from being dedicated, you know, that in those days before the company had a lot of employees, before it had a lot of locations, before I had all the brands that I had. Well, I remember telling my dad that we want to change this business model. He goes, okay, we can, I trust it. That's right. That's the right decision. You know, it was not, in the 1990 when there was a bad real estate recession in America. And he says, okay, I I'll I will trust you, but you have to be in charge. You have to be totally in charge. We never did retail before that. So in 1993, I opened my retail store, Hingwali Jewelers in San Gabriel, which is why actually this year is our 30-year anniversary of doing retail, although the whole thing is 60 years in two years. But actually, those days, me and the bosses, I didn't have budget. Oh, hire managers, hire all these people, you know, doing this and that. I had to be the hat for everything. I had to be the sales manager. I had to be the purchasing manager. I had to be the accounting manager. I had to be the marketing manager. I had to be there the first person to open the store and to be the last one to leave. I had to work seven days a week. There's no, oh, i have a day off because somebody else will open up and close. Who's gonna do that? I had to work 70 days a week for the first few years, okay? And so when I was talking about working hard, that's the level I'm talking about working hard. People, oh, I need, I need to have time to have fun or whatever. There's no time for fun. You got to make it happen. You got to be persistent. If I wasn't persistent, I wouldn't have got Rolex authorized dealership in 1995. And having that Rolex dealership in 1995 changed everything, changed the course of my business. If I didn't keep my integrity in doing this, because there was a lot of temptation to buy gray market, buy gray market, Rolex, sell it, or whatever. If I did that, I would be blackballed. I would never get Rolex authorized dealership if I did that. That was a shortcut to make money, but I could not do that. And so therefore, because
2: of all those things, I was able to, I guess you could say, make a million dollars you know, or more shortly after that. What is something you have purchased recently that gave you a lot of joy? Uh, right behind us is a car here that, that I just, that actually was the latest addition. Uh, you know,
0: obviously the, my 296 GTP Ferrari was also very great, and I know there's some purchase coming up, you know. Purchases, material things are great, are good, but they're temporary enjoyment, they're temporary satisfaction. They're not a eternal satisfaction. I think for me, changing lives, seeing lives change, seeing their quality of life being better, seeing a life's transformation to allow the, for people to have joy. There's a lot of nonprofits that I'm involved in, a lot of things that I do that, and I see that, that, that gives me a lot of joy. Yeah, I'm a religious person, so I'm a Christian, so I have a lot of Christian faith, and I do a lot of those things related to that, and it brings a lot of joy to see
2: people just better their lives. That's actually more enjoyment for me than buying stuff. Yeah, I was thinking, I was even wrote a quote down today thinking about coming here. And I was like, I didn't know you and I wasn't speaking for you, but I was, I was thinking about it's cool to have money, but it's cool to have help a lot of other people make money. And that's great, but there's a big population of people that are not even in that position. They're homeless. How do you
0: take in a homeless family and r- help them rehabilitate, give them the skills, help them get set up so they can get a job and apartment so in six months they go back out and be able to build up their lives again? Yeah. Now, obviously, I'm involved with a nonprofit I'm on board Door of Hope that does something like this and other things. But those are desperate people. Those are not just helping somebody that, oh, you made a, you know, you can make a million dollars or something. Those are just desperate that getting off the street Great point. and being able to live as a normal thing, which we take all take for granted, that normal is not good enough anymore,
2: that we have to be a millionaire. I mean, those are nice, but there's a lot of people that need to just even live normal. Do you have any regrets or what regrets you have from working too hard and was the, the money worth it? You know, so I
0: mentor this group called the, uh, the Inner Circle, because I have this company called Titan Education. That my partner is a senior professor at USC. I'm on the board of USC, and I guess teach a lot in, at USC Marshall Business School, too. We came together to mentor these professional business people. And, you know, they asked me, because they're younger, and they want to know what they don't know. And they asked me, hey, do I regret working hard? I mean, they're younger now, so they're and they have young children, or they just got married. Should they work so hard that they are they're doing right now to gain the success? And I tell them, I said, listen, I regret it that, although I said I need to work hard and maybe I didn't have a choice, but I regretted working so hard that I miss a lot of the time with my kids when they were young. And a lot of people get into this kind of treadmill because they happen to be younger and they had this opportunity, so they had to work hard and they believe achieving financial success that will in turn their family would appreciate, and they do. But If you ask the kids, they would say, hey, I would rather have seen my dad come to my performance, come to my recitals, come see my ball games. Some spend time with me to be with me instead of working and never seeing him. Yeah, we have a nice house. You know, they put me into a nice school. There has to be a balance that for us, us entrepreneurs and business people, we cannot say it's all the way this way, just working hard. And by the way, sometimes that's really selfish because that's what we want to do. We want to work hard. We don't want to deal with that home and the kids and the troubles they are or our wives and stuff. We actually want to escape that and be in this workplace where we have full control. This is our domain. We're fully controlled. We get the satisfaction of what we win. So it's actually harder and more selfless to be able to balance and take off some of that time to be with your family, to be involved with your kids and your wife and to do that. And so that's the balance that we need to encourage. I challenge my um, mentees that we coach to live. And I say, if you can't learn this, you will then, when you're 50, like me in my 50s, look back and not regret. I have regrets too, because I, I, nobody taught me that. I just worked hard. And now I can provide my family with the best place to live, the best vacation houses, the best rides, the best schools, the best clothes, the best teaching to help them with the school. And they're in the Ivy League school. They're in the best places. But if you ask them, would they have weather that I gave them less and be able to spend time with them more, to be there, they would have say yes. So that is something I try to share my experience with my mentees so that they don't
2: have to uh, go through that. Do you ever think you have too much money? I came in here and I was like, how many Ferraris do you really need? And then I think Pranav, the gentleman you work with, was like, well it's an investment. And, you know, do you ever have too many stocks? But I think there's definitely like my brother comments, I don't think CEOs should make this much money and do people need this much? Oh, yeah, <laughs>
0: okay. So in my personal philosophy of managing wealth, because the wealth, you can't take it with you. It's not really yours. Like my father or my father-in-law just passed away. My father passed away 12 years ago. Here, he's become a very wealthy man. He's built up a lot of things. But when he, just as he came to the earth and when he left the earth, he didn't bring anything with him. Nothing, not one thing. So we really are, don't own these things. We're just steward of these wealth. So then when, as we're a steward of these wealth in the lifetime that we are at, how do we use it? I would say that if one just use all the wealth for their own benefit, I think that's a little bit too extravagant. I think ultimately that's not going to give you the most happy. That's why when, when you ask rich people, are you really happy? Do you, do you have all this stuff that you own? Does it make you happy? They're not fully happy because the stuff you own only gives you temporary enjoyment and satisfaction. The real enjoyment in life is really be able to help other people. That's why when you give back and when you're involved with non and when you're able to use your funds that you create to help people, there's a, a lot greater and deeper joy in that. Now, for me, because I do that, I know I'm do, I do that. I have a philosophy of doing that. That's part of my Christian faith as well. That if I make more money or have more money, I have more wealth, I know I can then do more for other people. I know that I'm willing to do more people and I would do more for other people. So I think I'm okay to be able to handle that. I have the credibility to handle that. But some people, they hog it and they wanted to just, you know, I have more money than this guy or I have as much money as this guy. Do I get on Forbes? It's a competition or a comparison. I think that's
2: not that healthy. That's not gonna make you have joy, for sure. And what was an example of your dad's frugality? So it sounds like he made a business and you've expanded it, but what's an example of where he didn't spend money? There is a story on that, too. Ever since he's, you know, we're doing business, in his
0: mind, he wanted to have a Rolls Royce. And why was that? Because when he was in Hong Kong, he would cross the Star Ferry across Victoria Harbor, and then from that port, walking over to um, Salisbury Road, past the Peninsula Hotel, and into where he had a little office there. The Peninsula Hotel was the image of ultimate and luxury and success. They had a whole fleet of Rolls Royces in front of the hotel. Owning no a Rolls Royce would mean that I'm successful, right? And a lot of the Hong Kong people saw that image and took it that way. In his mind, you know, having a Rolls Royce means success. But also, it, it costs a lot, right? It costs a lot. But he felt guilty to buy it, to spend all this money to buy it for something for himself. Because, again, he'd rather, hey, that much money, I can maybe a down payment, buy a, another apartment complex and build more equity for the family. You know, again, that, that very selfless of him to do that. doesn't feel guilty to buy something of luxury and absorbently, you know, uh, things for himself, right? So, in 2005, knowing that he talks about it so much, and how great it is, but he wouldn't pull the trigger. 2005, I made a decision to buy a Rolls-Royce Phantom. Uh, I guess it's Phantom 7, it was the new at that time. I bought it from uh, a local dealer in Pasadena. I bought it and I gifted it to him. And he was so happy because if he was to buy for himself, he would be guilty. But his son buy for him, he's actually happy. You know why he's happy? Because now he can tell his friends, and he used it very preciously, he didn't drive it a lot, he didn't put a lot of miles on it. I still have the car, that's in my collection. It was a blue Phantom. Now he can brag to his friends, he says, not only that I could afford a Rolls Royce and buy, but I didn't, but I helped my son to be successful enough to be able to buy one and give it to me. So his point is that he helped his son to be successful, enough to do that for me, in appreciation for me. So it's not that he squandered on himself, but he helped his son be successful enough. And in return, his son just felt like he wanted to buy and gift. He had enough money to be able to buy and just gift it to his dad. So he really enjoyed that.
1: That is a wrap. I hope you loved the episode as much as we did making it for you. If you did, go give David some love on Instagram and Twitter. That's at Ferrari David Lee. Next, text a friend you love him. Yo, dog, let's run a Ferrari together. It's Honestly, it's cooler to rent than own, I'll tell you that. Anyways, before you go, tweet at me, Instagram me, at Noah Kagan. I love hearing what you think of these episodes and what kind of guests or episodes you want me to be creating. I appreciate that feedback. Also, go check out TidyCal.com. I use it to schedule customer calls and book meetings. It is free. You can use it to get paid for people to book meetings with you. We have people making over six figures a year from doing that. That's TidyCal.com. Finally, a couple of shout-outs to the amazing team that makes all this happen, Jason at PodcastTech.com for doing these podcasts. Thank you a Jeremy, Cam, Tommy, and Sylvie from the dork team for all the magic y'all do. Have a healthy day. What's your favorite? Jewelry. Real talk, I've been rocking the necklace. The whole life, no watch, no necklace, turn 40, bam. Necklace, wash, let's go. No, it's not a Rolex, you fancy snob.